The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. You may be seated and turn in your copies of God's Word, if you would, to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. As you're turning there, I want to go ahead and lay out for you a little bit of where we're headed. I'm going to look at the five marks of progressive Christianity so that you can recognize it when it shows up in the lives of ministries or churches or Christian institutions. Five marks to be on the lookout for. And, um, and then next week, one of the points I'm going to bring out today is, is that uh, progressive Christianity loses its dependence upon the supremacy of God's Word and begins to embrace extra-biblical literature that comes from uh, ungodly resources and is framed but yet is used and therefore begins to penetrate the church. There are two of those movements that I want to identify, that I want to deal with next week. Uh, one of those is revoice and then the next week is critical theory along with its subsets of critical race theory, critical law theory, as well as, um, as well as intersectionality. So hope to address those over the next two weeks. And then I want to finish up. The best way to keep away from the counterfeits is to know the real deal. So we'll finish up with the historic biblical Christianity so that we see what we're supposed to be doing, not just avoiding what we're not supposed to be doing as it would attempt to adulterate the church with false teaching uh, that Satan brings. Well, let me, um, before I look at the text with you in Galatians 1 and verse 6, let me maybe put it this way. In fact, you can check me out on this a little bit. This week there's going to be a program coming up in which I respond to an open letter that a dear friend of mine who pastors in Atlanta wrote, Michael Yusuf, uh, the pastor of the uh, Church of the Apostles. And in it, he, it was a letter of deep concern, a letter of, of concern that was, um, uh, that was just plain spoken. And this is what he said. He said, you know, in the 1970s and 80s, he said, I was in a mainline denomination, the Episcopal Church, and we began to embrace heresy. We began to falter in our faithfulness to the Word of God. Our very church constitutions and confessions were being abandoned. And then we began to lose the uh, the biblical roles of men and women in the church and in the family. We began to lose the ethics of biblical sexuality within the context of marriage, even losing marriage uh, and entertaining notions such as same-sex marriage, and then uh, in, and then allowing the faltering of the biblical ethics that uh, sex belongs in a covenantal monogamous heterosexual marriage. 
And he said, and I saw all that happening in my church and in the other mainline denominations. And now my heart is breaking, he writes, because I see it happening in the evangelical church. Even within my own branch, as he said. And of course, immediately I identify with him. You see, the mainline church has lost the battle. It's just a matter of time until the endowments run out. And it, um, uh, it loses its very existence. But what about the evangelical church that claims the authority of God's word, that claims the exclusivity of the saving work of Christ in the gospel? What about the evangelical church that claims that the scripture alone is our only rule of faith and practice? Well, what about that and um, uh, what about the uh, evangelical church and what we see happening within its boundaries, within its within its individual churches and denominations. And so I did a program to answer Michael. And uh, and this is what I think the issue is. The very same thing that destroyed the mainline churches at the end of the 19th century, moving into the 20th century, is destroying the evangelical church at the end of the 20th century as it moves into the 21st century. In the mainline church, it was liberal Christianity in the 19th century that was moving to the 21st to the 20th century. In the evangelical church, the inroads are made by not liberal Christianity as it would be its identifying titles, but by progressive Christianity. And it is my suggestion, strong conviction, that progressive Christianity is liberal Christianity 2.0. It is cut from the same bolt of cloth. So what do you see? You see the loss of the God-given celebrated distinctives of men and women in marriage, in family, in church. And notions of pagan egalitarianism creeping into the church. That men and women are simply interchangeable with each other. There's really no difference. Oh, you gotta put up with that little biological problem that physically they don't seem to be alike, but, but the notion that they're uh, interchangeable. And then the entertainment of the LGBTQ agenda, which by the way, if we, uh, to, in order to accept people, you have to accept their agendas, don't you? Isn't it, how can you say you love someone if you don't accept their agenda? And then, and then the breakdown of, um, of marriage, uh, the lack of a clear voice on the issue of the biblical doctrine of marriage, biblical sexuality. All of those things are beginning to falter and to fall away. Why? Because progressive Christianity infects the churches that court it the same way that liberal Christianity infected the churches a hundred plus years ago. You see, liberal Christianity did not start out as a movement to destroy the church. On the contrary, it was the latest movement that would save the church from cultural irrelevance. That with the rise of the modern mind and the rise of modern thought, there was so much we were doing and believing that if you want to impact the culture, then you certainly can't continue to do that. So we want to save the church from cultural irrelevance. Why? Because the new mission of the church became cultural transformation. That was the new mission of the church. That we 
want the seat at the table. And you begin to find all of these publications and organizations, even the title, The Protestant Century of Cultural Transformation, that we are going to bring the kingdom of God with a utopia into this world uh, through the actions of the church. And we are going to see this social improvement. So all of that began to be part and parcel of what was driving liberal Christianity, motivation, save the church from cultural irrelevance and position the church to fulfill its mission. And its mission now was to do what? Cultural transformation. Well, the simple fact is, and if you don't get anything else out of these six or seven sermons, please get this one. Whatever your functional mission becomes will eventually define your message and your ministries. Whatever you decide is your mission. Whatever you decide is your mission. That will eventually, it won't take long, particularly in this age of technology and communication, it will, de- it will define your message. Well, if the mission is cultural transformation and the motivation is to be accepted by the culture and applauded by the culture instead of being declared irrelevant by the culture, then the message becomes a download of the culture's message, so a cultural accommodation. Well, in that day and time, what were we told? We were told that the modern man cannot accept these supernatural dynamics in our confession of faith, virgin birth, resurrection, all of those things. So the Christian, so liberal Christianity then gave birth to theological liberalism, which basically, can I give you the layman's uh, North Charlotte definition? Just go through the confession and vacuum out everything that's got something supernatural to it, because that can't be presented to the modern mind. That would mean automatic rejection. So now the motivation led to a new mission, and the mission leads to a new message as the very glorious truths of who God is and what God does as creator, redeemer, and sustainer are vacuumed out, are eviscerated with theological liberalism, which then turned turned the church into nothing more than a cultural philanthropic organization. And so a social, the social uh, justice movement gave birth to a social gospel, just like a church growth movement gives birth to a pragmatic gospel, uh, just like a uh, self-esteem movement gives birth to a therapeutic gospel. You see, we've got a gospel, and that gospel doesn't make sense. That, that gospel is very clear, but it makes no sense if the mission doesn't line up with the message. So what people do is when they change the mission, they end up changing the message. But God knows no such contradictions. God says your motivation is not to save the church from irrelevance. Your motivation is to love me and love the lost and love one another with the truth. That's your motivation. And if you love me, you will not edit my commandments, not dismiss them. You'll keep them. And what was his last commandment to the church? He gave us our mission. Go make disciples. That's what we do. We make disciples. And then what? how do you make disciples? 
You make disciples by teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you as the whole counsel of God is brought to bear in the lives of people. And the whole counsel of God is brought to bear in the lives of people as it is wrapped and contoured by the gospel itself. The gospel of saving grace in Christ. And what is the gospel? The gospel is not a message of utopia here. We certainly want people to be blessed by truth and love and grace and mercy throughout society. But our mission is not utopia, nor is our mission dystopia. Our mission is the spreading of the gospel of the kingdom. And what does the gospel of the kingdom? Sinners saved by grace. Grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. That's our mission. Now, folks, it doesn't sound very grand because that's a very narrow mission. But the church has a narrow mission. There's a theologian that has greatly affected me, although I've modified some of his positions for my own convictions. His name was Kuiper, Abraham Kuiper. And he said that there are spheres of life that God has created. They are interdependent, but they are not overlaid with each other. There are three basic, church, state, and family. And you have to understand what are the lanes for the church, the state, and the family. The church is not the state, and it's not the family. But let me tell you what we do. We lead people to Christ and disciples them and send them into the family and send them into the church. So cultural transformation may not be our mission, but it will be a consequence because when people get right with God, then their lives change. And when their lives change, everything around them begins to change. And the reason that the a reason a pagan says in Europe, 25 years after the ascension of Jesus, these people have turned the world upside down is not because Paul had a mission to turn the world upside down. The reason they said it is because Paul was on mission to turn sinners right side up. And when sinners get turned right side up through the gospel and the whole counsel of God, then their lives, then they, then everything that happens in their lives begins to transform and that a ends everything. I gave you an example last uh, two weeks ago when we were here of the church at Ephesus. That Ephesus ended up with riots, economic riots, ended up with unrest, ended up with all kinds of violence that was taking place. Why? Because Paul was leading people to Christ and discipling them and as he did it, everything began to change including the, the business of idolatry began to go down the tubes. And so the people who were invested in our and Diana started to try to kill Paul. Paul didn't go in there to uh, to redo the industry and the economic strata. He went in there to redo the lives of men and women with the gospel. But when you get saved and you start getting disciple, guess what? You don't buy idols any longer. And you, there are other things that you don't do any longer. Not that you're doing those things to be saved. You're doing those things because of the call of the gospel to honor your Savior. And that begins to change everything around it. So we have a mission to make disciples. And that means we've got a message that's fitted for it. It's called the gospel. 
that through Jesus Christ and his redeeming work on the cross and sending the Spirit of God to track us down, what God does through his word and by his Spirit is search out and save sinners. They are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They are saved from all of their sins. They are being saved from the practice of sin and one day will be saved from even the presence of sin. There's the blessings that the gospel brings of regeneration. You're born again and the power of sin's been broken in your life. You're adopted and the position of sin has been eradicated. You're now in the family of God. You are right with God. You're justified. So the penalty of sin has been removed. And because of the word of God, the spirit of God and the means of grace and being nurtured within the church of Christ that's being faithful, then the practice of sin is being eradicated in sanctification, regeneration, justification, adoption, sanctification, and one day the presence of sin and glorification. And that changes people's lives, which changes their marriages, which changes their families, which changes the way they do business, which changes everything else in all of life. I'll give you an illustration of this. I, not long ago, was given the opportunity, oh, wait, wait just a minute, not long ago. Oh, no, this is about 30 years ago. Uh, that was, that was, it's been a while, but that's not that far gone from me. Uh, so I, um, I went down to do some uh, conference down in Brazil. And while I was down in Brazil, they, they put me on a plane and flew me uh, into the uh, Amazon. And I went to the place where Jim Elliott and the other four missionaries gave their life. And actually, one of the men that was in the tribe that had killed the Elliots. Uh, Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and uh, the Saints, et cetera, um, and Nate Saint, et cetera. But um, um, one of those uh, men put me in his dugout canoe and we went down the river <laughs> and he landed me at the bar and let me just stay there for a couple of hours as I thought through. I had studied it pretty much about what happened on that little sandbar in the middle of that tributary to the Amazon River. And I went through it and thought. And then I came back and stayed that night in the village uh, in the old home of, um, of Elizabeth Elliot there and uh, that she had had. And, you know, after those men died who refused to shoot their captors, they gave their lives up. The women came in later and began to do evangelism and discipleship. So here was a culture that was totally being destroyed with vengeance killing, with uh, uh, family anarchy, with sexual um, uh, immorality and perversion, uh, all the stuff that was happening in this isolated tribe. But what Jim Elliott led that team to do was not to transform the village, but to transform the villagers and then begin to teach them. And they came to Christ. So now you go down there, 85% of the villagers know Christ. Families are stabilized. A burgeoning economy that is being done well. People now have no more tripwires in front of their huts any longer, but open doors. I was able to lay down and go to sleep. In fact, I thought about myself Speaking of transformation, I'm riding with a guy that killed him, and I'm not even thinking about it. I mean, I, well, I did think one time as I was in the dugout canoe, I, I do hope and pray sanctification has taken hold here pretty good for this guy. 
Um, but that's what happens, folks. That's what I want you to see that happens. And, uh, and that's why it's important. That's, we're not being insensitive to the issues of the culture. What we know is the heart of the problems, the problem with the heart. And that's our mission. That's our mission. That's our ministry. So that we can then win people to Christ and send them into, into the media, send them into the performing arts, send them into politics, send them into, um, into ministry, send them into uh, academia, send them into all of those areas with a Christian mind and the saving work of Christ going on their life. So the church's mission is narrow, but its message undergirded by the gospel, is broad and comprehensive. So when we do our narrow mission with our broad message of the whole counsel of God, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, we turn out Christians, and the Christian mission, your mission as a Christian, is broad. Whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. You are the salt. Here's your mission. You're the salt of the earth. That's a pretty big one. You're the light of the world, but you can't do that unless the church stays on mission, on message, and in ministry. And so what I wanted to tell Mr. Yusuf, what Christian liberalism did, wrong motivation, wrong mission, wrong message, and wrong ministries, is exactly what progressive Christianity does. I've read all of them. Well, not all of them. I've read most of them. I've read the most salient ones. Listen to their motivation. We have to rescue Christianity from the dustbin of history. Our children will not be there. Look at them leaving Christianity by the droves. May I suggest to you the reason that we as the evangelical church are not making an impact like we want to make and should be making in the lives of our young people is not because we need a better mission and a better message. It's we haven't been doing the mission and message. We've gotten off track and our churches are five miles wide, one inch deep. That's the problem. And parents have said one thing but do something else. And when the kids grow up, they said, I'm not going to play the game one Sunday a month. I'm just not going to do it. The problem that we've had is not that we've got the wrong message and the wrong mission. The problem is, is we haven't stayed on mission and on message. So what is the motivation? We're going to save the church. Same thing as liberal Christianity. Secondly, cultural transformation. Seek the welfare of the city. That's what you do. Human flourishing. That's our objective. Well, folks, I have nothing to. I think I think that there I think that there are many good consequences of the church being on mission and on message. I want to see the blessing of the gospel flow into the lives and neighborhoods because people's lives are being changed. I want to see that happen. I want to disciple politicians who know how to make sensible policies uh, that will bless other people. All of that needs to be done, but that's not our mission as the church. Our mission is to rescue the perishing, teach them the word of God, disciple them, and send them out into the world with a new heart, a new record, a new life, and a new mind, a renewed mind in the Lord. But that's not what's happening. The the progressive Christianity says, no, we got to save the church, even though Jesus has already said, you you be faithful. (laughs) 
I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But we think we need to save the church. And we need to save the church by giving it a dressed up mission that the culture wants us to have. And eventually what happens, we then begin to accommodate the message to what the culture wants us to have. And so I want to try to draw this out for you with just a couple of thoughts uh, from Galatians and then give you these five marks to think about as we look at the next week. So, Mr. Youssef, the problem, the problem you encountered in the 70s and 80s from the downgrade of liberal Christianity, what you're seeing is the downgrade of Christianity again because of progressive Christianity, which is only a recycled 2.0 liberal Christianity. Now, everybody pushes back on me because they say, no, who and who, you don't hear any progressive pushing to take out the virgin birth, to deny the resurrection. No, not yet. That's not been the request. But I'll tell you what the request has been. Be silent on biblical ethics of sexuality. Be silent on the sanctity of marriage. Be silent on the sanctity of life. Be silent on the sanctity of gender. And so the church obediently is canceled in the whole council of God and no longer preaches it because they're told the culture won't accept them. And they'll become irrelevant. And the pulpits begin to compromise. And when the pulpits compromise, the pew compromises. And when the pew compromises, the witness is lost. Paul knew this was so crucial, which is why when he saw another gospel creeping into the church, the churches in Galatia, This is what he says to the churches in Galatia. Go with me in chapter chapter 1 and verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. There's not another gospel, but you have abandoned the true gospel, and now you've got an invented gospel, which is no gospel. But there, so he says that you are turning to a different God, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you. This doesn't come without infiltration of false teachers. He calls them troublers. They're coming in. Please remember what I shared two weeks ago. Satan has three strategies. Intimidation to silence the church. Imitation to confuse the church. And infiltration of false teachers in the church. And the number one doctrine in the Bible is what? The gospel. If you get that wrong, you get everything else. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered to you that which is of first importance. The gospel. Everything else in the Bible is important. But if you get the gospel wrong, then you get everything else wrong. My brother-in-law who makes trusses, the house that we built for ministry in Charlotte, he made the trusses for our house. And he was sharing with me how they made these large wooden trusses that were exposed. And uh, this, this happened to be a pretty good expanse. And he showed me, he said, you know, he said, we're taking this time. He said, because Harry, if we get off just a millimeter right here at the beginning, 
when we get there, we're going to be a foot off. And it's going to be no good. When you get off of the gospel, all the other doctrines collapse. Because the gospel is the foundation, the formation, and the motivation of the Christian life. So when Paul saw the gospel being attacked, he went on the warpath to maintain the purity of the gospel. And, and then he says, and the reason that the go- another gospel is being preached is because of false teachers that have infiltrated you, those who have, those who are troubling you. And here's what he then says, and I want, and want you to distort the gospel of Christ. Remember, Paul said that to the church at Acts. Upon my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, the teachers of the church. Doing what? Teaching distorted things and leading the sheep um, astray to themselves, away from Christ to themselves. And then he says to them, as we've said, uh, he said this, but even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you. Let him be what? Accursed. He pronounces an anathema. Listen, he pronounces, this issue of the gospel is so important, he pronounces an anathema upon himself if he ever taught something other than the gospel. He said, if we, and then he says, I'll tell you what, what if you walked in here one Sunday and you looked up here and there, and there's an angel. In all of his ethereal glory. And an angel stands in this pulpit. And starts teaching something contrary to the gospel of saving grace in Christ. What do you do? You don't say, well, it must be an angel. I guess I ought to listen up. No, you've got the Bible. And you test everything by the Bible. And if it is being contrary to the word of God, the whole counsel of God, you deal with it. But if it's going after the most primary truth of all in the Bible, the gospel, this angel that's there preaching something else, you take him by his ethereal pants and throw him out the door. That's what you do with him. And he says, if it's me, then pronounce church discipline upon me. Make, declare that I'm accursed. Because this is crucial. Nobody can get saved without the gospel message. So we can't allow another gospel. This is something we've got to be on the alert for. So let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Notice, to the one you what? Received. The gospel that was delivered in the first century of all of the promises of God being yes and amen in Christ and the redeeming triumphant work of Christ on the cross, his resurrection, ascension and second coming and the outpouring of the spirit of God. This gospel can never be edited. Must never be edited. In fact, nothing in your Bible is to be edited. If any man adds or subtract, let him be anathema. And you certainly, the most foundational doctrine of all, you can't edit the gospel. You can't edit it by adding to it, nor should you edit it by silence. And that's exactly what begins to be seen in the, in this current movement of progressive Christianity. Let me give you five things that mark it out as another gospel because of its disastrous effects in the life of the church. 
Now, you've, I've already given you some, haven't I? It's got the wrong motivation. It's got the wrong mission. It's therefore the wrong message and therefore the wrong ministries. But um, before we get to that, which is before we um, before we um, well, let me let me just go beyond that. Let me take that part. The, because it's got the wrong message, there are five things that begin to be seen in a ministry, in a preacher or in a church that is embracing progressive Christianity. Number one. Is the, is a denial of the functional supremacy of God's word in faith and practice. There will be a denial of the supremacy of God's word in faith and practice. Harry, how do you see that? Here's how you see it. Instead of defining the terms of Christianity from the word of God, they'll be defining it from psychology and therapy language. That's what you'll begin to hear. There will be the therapeutic interpretation of the gospel. The supremacy of God's word in matters of faith and doctrine begins to be lost. Now, how is it lost back in liberal Christianity? They denied the inerrancy of God's word. That is such a stupid thing. How can a modern person believe that a book written over 1,600 years, 40-plus human authors could be inerrant? And so they jettisoned the inerrancy of the word to be accepted by the culture. That's not what progressive Christianity, that's why you don't hear calls to get rid of the virgin birth and all of that. What they deny is not the inerrancy of God's word, but the sufficiency of God's word. The Bible says all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be adequate complete and equipped for every good. All I need to know God and make him known in life is given to me in the special revelation of his word. It is sufficient. And when God finished it, the last author said, do not add or subtract. God's word is sufficient. But what you begin to see is a denial of the sufficiency of God's word. Why? Well, I could take you to website after website of evangelical pastors and even within my own denomination where extra-biblical books that come from anti-Christian philosophies are recommended for reading and training and discipleship. And I'm going to go into some of them starting next week, whether it's the revoice issue or the critical theories issue, the Hegelian dialectic as it's downloaded uh, in Marxism. Those things that are designed to destroy Christianity are actually being propelled into Christianity. And it comes like this. Oh, well, we're not saying, oh, no, listen, these are just valuable. They're good for analysis. They're good for helps. You can... Eat the meat and spit out the bones. Well, folks, listen. First of all, I I agree. There are some philosophies that in God's common grace, the philosopher who's an unbeliever got the thing right. Got some stuff right. Paul quoted from the Stoics and the Epicureans when they got something right. Now, my daddy didn't use ideas like common grace. He just said, well, blind pig finds an acorn every once in a while. And that's what happens. But when you get a document that is drawn from a philosophy that is anti-Christian, that's not a bony fish that you're trying to eat the meat. Number one is all the meat you need is in the Bible. That's all you need 
to deal with these issues that are facing us today, whether it's uh, partiality, racism, um, uh, equity, a biblical understanding of equity, a biblical understanding of equality. All of those things are there in the Bible, what we need. But they say, no, no, we've got to have this. If you don't have this, then you're not loving, you're not feeling, and you're not properly equipped. Well, when you have something that's drawn from when you're trying to draw from something that's designed to destroy you, that's like thinking I'm going to drink poison and somehow I'll get the goody out of it. Well, let me give you a better illustration. A man's in the ocean on a raft. He's dying of thirst and there is the ocean. But he knows somebody told him, don't drink the seawater. Why? This isn't hard. Come on. It'll kill you. Well, what if he says, well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to drink the seawater and spit out the salt. It don't, the seawater isn't made to spit out the salt. You can't spit out the salt. The things you are imbibing are killing biblical Christianity, not an asset to it. But when you deny the sufficiency of the scripture, then what you've done is you've now exposed yourself to the philosophies of this age and this present darkness that is coming from it. And when people begin to deny the sufficiency of Scripture, here's what happens. They continue to use biblical terms, but define them with worldly philosophies. I had a guy call me the other day and he said, Pastor, we're looking for a pastor. Can you give us a name? And I said, well, let me pray about it and I'll get back to you. He said, well, as you pray about it, just let me tell you something. Don't send us one of those missional guys. Those missional guys, they're progressive. I said, whoa, 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 wait, 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 hold it. Uh, the word missional is a not a bad word. <laughs> it comes from the word mission. That's not a bad word. What does missional mean? Missional means a lifestyle of total commitment to achieve the mission. The only problem when you've got missional, the only time missional becomes a problem is when you got the wrong mission. That's when it's a problem. I want to be missional. I want to have a lifestyle committed to making disciples of all the nations. I want it to affect the way I do everything in life. Missionals, but you see, here's the problem, and this is what you got to, when the sufficiency of scripture is abandoned, the same, um, the, the progressive Christianity uses the same vocabulary, the same glossary, but a different dictionary. That's why you have to add, now what do you mean by that? What do you actually mean by that? And so you've got to ask those questions because they're not working from the same dictionary. And that is the authoritative word of God that's, that defines everything that we believe and what we ought to believe. And you begin to find concoctions, like I'll get into one uh, uh, next week, revoice. How do we minister to those who are engaged? How do we minister to those who are engaged in sexual addictions of anarchy and perversity? How do you do that with the embedded dynamics that take place with that? How do you do that? Well, you get... Side A, and side A tells us, hey, look, the church has gotten this wrong. As long as they're committed, it doesn't matter. 
And then you got side B. Well, yeah, we don't say, we don't say God made them that way, like the side A, but we believe that when you, when you're born with a sin nature, some people have a sin nature that disposes them to same sex orientation. Well, if I'm looking at my Bible and I'm studying, where in the world in the Bible does it say that people get designed sin natures? Well, I kill people because I'm a, I have a homicidal sin nature. Or I engage in pornography because I got a pornographic sin nature. No, we get a sin nature. We're at rebellion against God. We're dead in our sins. And then we begin to work it out in the context of where we've been raised and what we're doing through the decisions that we make. But when you give up the Bible and go to psychology, now you start coming with terms that the Bible don't, doesn't even recognize, such as sexual minorities, such as same-sex orientation. Those are, those are terms that come out of categories that have been invented by worldly philosophies and we're trying to import them into the Bible because we don't think the Bible is sufficient and the gospel itself is not sufficient. All right, I'm out of time, just about, so I'm just going to give you these others, and we'll pick them up again. Secondly, in progressive Christianity, belonging, now remember, with the sufficiency of Scripture reduced, what becomes paramount? Belonging, not believing. Not what you believe, but do you belong? And for people to belong, it's okay to compromise what they should believe. And you'll hear disdain. You mean you're a part of a church that you've got to believe the right thing to be a member of that church? Yeah, it's called the gospel. It's called believing Jesus. Who he is and how he's revealed himself. Yes. And it's called surrendering to the whole counsel of God, the word of God. Yes. Our belonging is related to our believing. And our believing isn't, and, but believing doesn't just put us in a place where we happen to believe the right propositional truths, but now we have a relationship with God, and our relationship with God through Christ brings us into relationships with others that are being led by that gospel. But in progressive Christianity, it's not do people believe in the Christ revealed in the Word of God as the Savior of sinners, it becomes their acceptance no matter what they believe. We can accept people without accepting sin and without accepting theological error. That's a myth that if you love someone and accept someone in a relationship, then you have to accept what they do and what they believe. Number three, confessional boundaries are removed. Confessional boundaries are removed. Now here's how they're being removed. Please get this. In liberal Christianity, they just removed the statements they didn't want. Take that virgin birth out. Take that resurrection out. Take that uh, um, uh, atoning death out. Take all that stuff out. That's, that will never get a seat at the table of the culture if we believe that. No, this, this, this culture, uh, we're not quite there. Although we're almost there, you'll hear progressive churches say this. We've got to do away with this cross thing. 
Why would we expect the, why would we expect the 21st century young people to believe and trust and love a God who is guilty of child abuse of his own son? That comes from progressive pulpits. I quote them to you. That the death of the Son of God on the cross was divine abuse of the Father upon his Son. I was in a debate recently where that was brought to me. My answer was, oh my goodness, will you forgive me? It's clear I haven't explained something to you. Jesus didn't go die an abused death or a martyr's death. Jesus was sent by the Father and he willingly went to the cross to bear our sins and it was an atoning death. And there is your hope in Christ. This whole notion of confessional boundaries, it'll start with the gospel. The gospel gets adulterated. And how is it adulterated? Here is a whole movement to help people in sexual addictions. And what do we tell them? You can come to Christ and you can be justified and you can be adopted. But don't let people tell you that the power of sin's been broken in your life. They deny that. Here's what is happening. It's a half gospel in the ministry of progressive churches. Here's the gospel blessings that are declarative. Right with God. Justification. Adoption. But we actually don't believe in the power of regeneration. That the dominion of sin has been broken. And you don't have to sin. And it comes with phrases like this. Quit telling people to pray the gay away. That is so blasphemous against the divinely ordained means of grace. That statement. What it reveals is we actually don't believe that the power of sin is broken in the life of those who are converted. And not only is regeneration, but also sanctification is set aside. Sanctification is declared, well, that just doesn't happen. I have heard bold statements right within my own denomination that people with deeply embedded sexual sins don't have any hope of being freed from them in this life. And that the sexual desires of promiscuity and and sexual desires of anarchy are not sin. It's only sin if they're acted out. But the Bible is clear that the lust and the desire is sin. And then when people begin to abandon the word of God and the gospel... The confessional boundaries are erased because the church won't engage in church discipline. There are three marks to the church. The church is marked by preaching, prayer, and the word, marked by the sacraments, and marked by discipline. Now, normally, discipline is positive. That's what we call discipleship. But sometimes, when people are teaching errors, you have to discipline them. You have to set aside their credentials and their teaching ministry. And if the church does not enact discipline upon false teachers, it's done away with its confession. You might as well not have it if you don't, if you don't properly apply it to those who teach and preach. So you have the loss of sufficiency of scripture, the erasing of what is believed in order to affirm belonging, 
then the uh, then the confessional boundaries are undermined and adulterated, which eventually leads to apostasy. And then number four is contextualization becomes the governing principle of the Christian life. Got to be in the world, but somebody somebody forgot to say this last part, but not of the world. And today's church, we actually think that we're going to bring people to Christ by how much like we are the world. When the Bible says it's when we humbly display that Jesus makes a difference. That's what draws people to hear the gospel. And that's what affirms the testimony of the gospel. So we have the contextualization issues. Well, you got to be in the world and you got to deal with what the world is telling you to deal with. And so because of contextualization and you don't want to offend people because the culture isn't there, you'll hear sermons and rightly so on racism if they're biblically dealing with racism, rightly so on sex trafficking if they're biblically dealing with that, rightly so on um, uh, on uh, on humility if we're biblically defining that, rightly so on justice, rightly so on the welfare of the city if you're biblically defining what is the welfare of the city, rightly so on all those things, but the pulpits of progressive churches will be silent on gender, on the sanctity of sexuality on the sanctity of marriage, on the sanctity of life, because the culture won't applaud that. And now the culture controls the pulpit, which means the culture is conforming the pew to the culture. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How does that happen? Through preaching that is faithful to God's word, that's done lovingly, but with conviction. That's what needs to happen. But when we, when we bow to contextualization, let me put contextualization the way I understand it and the way that I, number one, contextualization is not what I use to interpret the Bible. When I try to preach, my job isn't to get the Bible to this century. My job is to get you back to the century where the Bible was written, then apply it to life today. You need to understand it in the context it was written, not reinterpret it for the context of today. Understand it in the context it was written was called historical grammatical interpretation of the Bible that's focused upon Christ and then apply that today. This is what it means now. Contextualization is, now listen to me carefully. Contextualization is speaking to the culture in the terms the culture can understand. Contextualization is not speaking on the terms the culture demands. Contextualization is speaking the truth of God's word to the culture in the terms it can understand. That does not mean that we speak only the terms that the culture allows. Fifthly and finally, there will be an abandonment of the means of grace. My heart just broke this last week, a very promising young man that I knew in the ministry. Basically, he has left the ministry, and I quote, I believe to be a faithful minister of the gospel, I need to become a community organizer. You see, now listen, I actually believe if we're doing our job, we're going to disciple some people that become community organizers. 
But that's not the sacred call. And what that reveals is a denigration and despising of the primacy of preaching and the priority of prayer and the means of grace. We just don't really believe that it does what God says he does with it. That it's through the foolishness of preaching that we are being saved. So the churches, it's no accident when we walk into churches now. And I don't want to overdo this. Okay, don't, don't, I'm, I'm about to close in prayer. Take heart, I'm going to close in prayer. But don't assault me on this one. But I do believe it's an indicator when the churches of today put a plexiglass lectern in the place of a pulpit. Preaching is a utilitarian thing. We may or may not make room for it. There's not even an architectural statement of substance. That we believe is through the preaching of the word. That men and women come to Christ. Faith comes from hearing the word of Christ. And the call to intercessory prayer. And the blessings of prayer and the word. This is why the apostles said we must not neglect prayer and the word. We must not. The early church from which the world was turned upside down in Jerusalem was conceived in a prayer meeting, Acts 1. It was birthed in a sermon, Acts 2. Prayer and the Word. Well, those are the marks that I would lay out for you. I want to take on some of these extra-biblical literature that's now replacing the sufficiency of Scripture starting next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time we could be together in your Word. Thank you, Father, for Jesus, our Redeemer the Lord of glory. Thank you that he has promised to build his church. Would you please allow us to stay on mission, on message, and in ministry? I realize that progressive Christianity, just like liberal Christianity, does have wolves in sheep's clothing. But I also realize that there are some who the issues have attracted them. The siren call of the world's wisdom has captured their minds. There are some who are sheep in wolves' clothing. I pray that you would help us win them, even as Paul won Peter when Peter began to depart for another gospel. Help us to be faithful, Jesus, to your word, to our mission, to our message, to our ministry. And then, Father, send transformed sinners throughout this world as salt and light that we may see the praise of our God cover the earth as the waters cover the sea and the gospel move forward in power. The world calls for wokeness. We ask for the awakening. Awake, O sleeper, and rise up. May the gospel give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to follow. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reader, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reader, visit us at 
briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.